This is Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish, accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Wes, welcome. Thank you for teaching us today. Let's welcome Wes, please. It's good to be back with you guys. So I have a little insecurity of coming to Grace Church. First, I love being here, but the insecurity is that I bring so much weight that last time, I don't know if you remember, the pulpit here, the music stand started to go down and I had to bring a second one. So I felt pretty nerdy having two music stands. Uh, yeah, open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 55 or your phone apps and uh, let me pray as you turn there. Father, we are incredibly thankful that we get to gather as your people. Apart from your powerful word going out, none of us would be sitting here this morning. None of us would have the desire to come under your preached word, to receive it, to apply it, to make it known to those in our lives. And so we first want to just say thank you. Lord, we ask in the same way that you had first done the work of salvation in our hearts by making the word alive and active in us, would you do so again this morning? God, would you even help us, those many there may be sitting here even this morning who know the right answer is to say we love your word, we treasure it because it points ultimately to your great and glorious son, but Lord, we confess many may have found it growing old in our lives. Many have found it gathering dust on a shelf while, if we're honest, our affections may be elsewhere. And so would you do that work, Lord? You love to reveal yourself. You love to make much of your Son. And you have breathed out this Word through your Holy Spirit. And so would we, under all of these great and beautiful realities have our hearts and minds and affections opened once again to you. Holy Spirit, you know each and every person here. And so would you speak to them in a way that you see fit concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So come now, O Lord, do what you intend to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Tab, I am going to say we may need a second music stand. I'm just saying. Just be ready if you see this shrinking. Uh, if, if any of you have ever turned on HGTV, uh, it's the show where they do things to houses, uh, you, you have seen very quickly that there is this love 
that our culture has of seeing these old broken down houses that are torn apart, that are worth next to nothing, and seeing these people who come in. Right now there's like 17 different couples who live in different areas of the country who go into these houses, buy them for cheap, remodel them, and make something new out of them. Uh, One of the main writers for one of these shows, I read a quote, he says, America cannot get enough of these shows. They will spend hours in front of the TV watching, hoping that they themselves will somehow be invited into a story of one man's trash being turned into another man's treasure. And I think a lot of us, we we find ourselves being, whether it's these shows or antique cars or antiques in general, we find something appealing about seeing something that really means nothing, that looks like trash, that is considered nothing worth holding on to, and all of a sudden seeing something beautiful being made out of it. Now, the living and active word has far more power than the people do to make things new and living and full of life. And at Kaleo, every single year, this was our our 10th year as a church, every single year we finish up the year with a sermon on the Word of God. Now obviously we preach through the Word of God week after week, but it's a a sermon that's supposed to remind us and reinvigorate this love for this reality that God intends to continue to transform His people through his word. Now the living and active word, which goes beyond, I think, turning someone's trash into another person's treasure. Rather, it takes dead things, things that are lifeless, things that are considered cursed, and is able to make them alive. And we're going to see a lot of this in Isaiah 55 this morning. Now, the whole book of Isaiah, I don't have the time to set up the whole context here, but in short, you have a people who are in exile. The people of God have not honored God as they should. They've worshipped the idols of surrounding nations. And rather than being a light to the nations, they've become far more like the surrounding nations than they have their God. And then you get to Isaiah chapter 40, and the language in a sense starts to get a bit more specific on God's mission to these people. And these people, Israel, who were primarily God's people at this time, start to hear this message that has been kind of cloaked the whole time. And it starts to expand that he's on a mission not just to transform them, but he wants to bring in all the surrounding nations. He wants them to be a light to these nations, but they're in exile because they have failed to do so. But God is continuing to make this promise from Isaiah 40 forward that the world will one day be worshipers. Of this God. And part of this mission, part of these promises from Isaiah 40 forward, is this repeated language of God making cursed things new. This promise to take that which is broken, which looks utterly beyond repair, and bringing life and abundance and beauty out of it. It's a guarantee that He will renew the cursed world by turning it into a creation that is flourishing, that in every single corner, even though the curse is running rampant, there will be little glimmers of hope and beauty wherever you look. 
And the way God intends to do this is through his word. Now let me ask you, if you were asked to explain what is the purpose of God's word, what would you say? If you were asked, what what is the purpose of God's word, how would you respond? Some people may say, oh, it teaches us how to have a better life. Others might say, it teaches us how to have good morals so that we could raise our kids to have good morals. Some might say, it teaches us about who God is and what he's done. And all of these have truth to them, some maybe more than others. But while all these have some truth to them, Isaiah is going to show us something very specific about the purpose of God's word this morning. Look at verse 10 with me. Look at this beautiful illustration. For as the rain and the snow, now snow is this white thing that in other states, it's like water that freezes and comes down and it's it's frozen. For For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. I'm going to stop right there. Isaiah is giving us this illustration about snow and rain falling from the heavens down into the earth and producing fruit, producing, bringing plants about. That what, what Isaiah is trying to say here is God doesn't create things that have no purpose. That when God thought up and drained up this beautiful creation, he created rain and snow for a purpose. That it would come to the ground, that it would water the ground, and that it would bring forth something. For the people in Isaiah's day, rain and snow were a great commodity. You see, unlike us, they couldn't just go to the spigot and turn on the water. Right? They couldn't just set their timers so their sprinklers could water all their plants. Yes, they had great irrigation skills and all these things, but they were dependent upon rain. In fact, the whole Bible uses all of this agricultural imagery to make something very clear. Rain and snow were seen as a blessing from God himself because it would give them the food they so desperately needed to eat. It would give them the food they so desperately needed to sell so they could make a living and actually survive. This illustration of rain and snow is not just something for us to say, oh, look, it's raining two days this year. What a sweet thing for us. No, it it was something for them that was life in liquid form. But Isaiah, he's using this impactful picture to make a point. He opens with this illustration to then tie it tightly To this point, he wants to drive a cross about the word of God. Look at verse 11 with me. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. So in the same way that rain and snow were created by God to come down to the ground and bring something about... That illustration he's using to say, so my word goes out and always accomplishes its intended purpose. Always. God isn't like us who just uses words to fill the silence, right? If we're awkward and you're introverted like me and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to say something or you just start talking. 
God's word has a purpose in every single thing he utters. Let me give you guys a quick example of this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, at the very beginning of creation, we read, And God said, Let there be light. Guess what happened? There was light. It's amazing. God speaks. He has an intended purpose that light would come about, and the moment he speaks it, light comes about. So how did that light come about? By his word. This means that when God's word is preached, when it's declared, when it's shared, when it's read, when it's discussed, God is using his word the way he intends to use it. Now this, for those in the room who would consider themselves Christians or followers of Jesus, this should be the most humbling reality. Because what this means for you is that in your life, the word of God has come to you. It has done the supernatural work of opening your eyes, of giving you a new heart, helping you to understand who God is, to believe in him and trust in him because that is what God intended. This doesn't say you were smart enough to figure it out that like, oh yeah, you know, I studied Islam, I studied Mormonism, you know, I studied atheism, if that's a thing you can study. I studied all these things and I was just smart enough to figure out that Christianity is the right one. No, this is saying God intended for his word to bear fruit in your life and you should be radically humbled by that. And what this also means is that our family, our coworkers, our friends who do not yet believe in Jesus and are not following him. And this is hard to swallow sometimes. But this means up to this point, you didn't mess up at sharing the word with them. It means that God has not yet intended for them to believe. You see, this, is, this can frustrate people, but I want you to see this is meant to free us because some people will say, okay, so if God's just going to do what he wants, why even share the word? He's powerful, I'm not. If he wants to save someone, why would I even share? Because God has called us to. God makes very clear throughout the scriptures that we have been made ambassadors, those who have a message from the king about another country that we share radically and humbly because we weren't smart enough to figure it out. God opened our eyes, and it's great news that we carry. So we share it liberally, and then guess what? The responsibility is up to God. We're free. Like, that's the goodness of his word. He's doing what he wants. So we can go out, and the same neighbor who has got angry at us or who has made fun of us, the next day we can say, hey, man, I know yesterday you called me some names that my kids did not understand and I had to explain later. I want to share with you again why it's necessary for you to repent and trust in Jesus. Because guess what? That might be the day God intends for that person to trust in him. So it's supposed to free us. Now the truth is, this is hard for us because there's many days where the word of God seems dry to us. Right? We can get up in the morning, maybe even expectant. We open the word of God and Five minutes later, we close it, confused. What, what does that mean? God, where are you? Why are you not speaking? There are days where it just seems like it's been a long time since the Word of God has been impactful, that it has meant something to us. 
And yet that doesn't, it doesn't get rid of the reality that it is his intended means of changing his creation. Look at Isaiah 55, 13 with me. Instead of thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now you notice I skipped verse 12. We're going to get there eventually. The reason I go to verse 13 is because he's starting to, to use this imagery again with nature, right? First it was rain and snow, and it would come down and bring about life. And now we're seeing what that life looks like. But he's, he's using these different kind of plants. Now when Isaiah mentions these thorns and these briars, Isaiah's original audience would quickly think of the idea of the curse. You see, from Genesis 3 forward, all the way through the scripture, whenever thorns and briars are used, it's this reminder and reality to the people of God that the world isn't the way it should be. That the, the creation which was once only full of beauty and was flourishing is now being tangled and choked out by thorns and briars. This goes back as early as Genesis 3, like I said, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God comes and he says this to Adam because the curse has come rushing into the world. He says this in Genesis 3.17, he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. That last part's basically saying people ate burgers before the fall. Salads are a gift, and we enjoy them, but they came after. Uh, of course, Isaiah's audience here would have quickly grabbed onto this language of thorns and thistles. They would have said, okay, Genesis 3, the curse. Yes, it's everywhere. Isaiah's audience is in exile, right? The Babylonian people have come and taken them hostage and put them in their land. They know that the curse is alive and well. Now, Isaiah specifically picks up this language of thorns and briars and thistles more than any other author in all of the Old or New Testament. Now, there's tons of uses of this imagery, but I'm going to read three just to kind of give you guys an overview. Isaiah 5, 6 says, I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Isaiah 7.24, with bow and arrows a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. There he's saying warfare even is a part of the curse. And then Isaiah 32, 12 and 13, beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Here's the deal. The people of God in Isaiah's day, are experiencing the curse as they're in exile under the rule and oppression of the Babylonians. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, but God is lovingly disciplining them for looking more like the surrounding nations than they are 
looking like lights to the nations surrounding them. In a real sense, God is defining his own people here as those who are cursed, as those who rather than beautiful and flourishing are dying and fading away. And I imagine them in exile are longing again for the reign of God's blessing to come down upon them as they bear the weight of what it must be like to be in exile. Longing that God's grace would come down once again and transform them into something beautiful, something full of life rather than the curse. They're longing really to drink deeply of God's grace once again. Now listen to the power of God's word to change things that are cursed like this into something beautiful. I'm going to read verse 13 again. Instead of thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You see, God's word is, is coming down and is capable enough and powerful enough to transform that which is cursed into that which is beautiful and alive. These, these trees that he uses here, he goes from thorns and thistles, or thorns and briars, to cypress and myrtle. In this day, cypress and myrtle were trees that were symbolized as synonymous with beauty and blessing and life. So all of a sudden, you, you picture the, the ground just full of dirt and thorns, and then all of a sudden, bursting forth are these trees full of beauty and blessing. Because the rain of God's grace has come down, and it's brought life to that which was once, once cursed. This means that God is promising to these people in exile, who are there because of their own sin, He is promising to once again bring His word down to a dead and cursed people and transform them into something beautiful and alive. Now I think of the people in exile here, and I think they would have received this word with hope. Like, is, is God really going to do this? Is He going to do this again? It, if you look at Israel's history over and over, there are people who are consistently being rescued by God and then putting themselves back under the curse over and over. And so I think they would have heard this with some hope. But I also think they would have wondered, how in the world is God going to do this? Think, think about it. They looked around them, and this is a 70-year period of exile. As they look around them, all they see is the harsh Babylonian rule and oppression. Some of the parents who would have seen God's great and wonderful works have been exiled and have passed away in exile. Some of, some of the kids that were born into exile because it was 70 years long would have grown up hearing these great and grand stories about what God has done only to die without seeing Him do a thing. I think as they heard this promise of God one day bringing life again and making things beautiful, I think they would have wondered how in the world God would do this. Because as far as what their eyes could see, it didn't look possible. Maybe you're in here this morning, and you can relate. Every, everything you look at 
as you look back at 2019, you only see curse. Maybe it's loved ones this year who had passed away. Maybe it's waking up morning after morning to your alarm, going to a job you can't stand to go to, being around coworkers you can't possibly imagine spending one more day with. Maybe for you kids, it's going to school another day just to be bullied once again. If God's word is all that powerful to change things, then why is it that day after day things seem so dark and cursed? We're not too far removed from the people of Isaiah's day. I think many of us can look at our own lives and wonder, God, how in the world can you transform this? It's been so long. And maybe, maybe just maybe, all hope in God's word has started to die within you. You've tried the reading plans. You've tried to get up early. And it just seems that the more you read, the more you hear about the word of God, things just stay the same. And if things look this bleak, how in the world can God take his word and make dead and cursed things into things full of beauty and life? Well, next we're going to look at the word of God himself. You see, the word of God is not just words in this book we have, this special book. But the word of God is also a person the second person of the Trinity, and he has a name, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And as he watched his creation fall into and under the curse over and over, he did not just watch from heaven as a spectator shaking his head and wagging his finger at people saying, if they would just figure out how much I love them, they would be okay. But rather, he himself put on a body and came down into this cursed world. And he did so not as just a spectator, but one who would have to live in and under the curse himself. And that's why as we finish this Christmas season, he was born in a manger. Not in the inn, but in a stable. He was born where shepherds who were poor and the outcasts of society could witness and see him. He was coming to the broken world itself. And he was showing he was willing to get his hands dirty and get involved in all of it. The same one who had said, let there be light, and there was light, came down into the darkness to shine his light to the nations the way Israel should have. John 1, 1 1-4 says it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us and he and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth you see jesus came down into this world to fulfill the mission israel had to make dead and cursed things alive 
We see this in a, in a numerous amount of cases, but I'll just mention a few. Jesus comes to the lepers who were untouchable, right? You weren't supposed to touch them, get near to them. And Jesus not only comes and speaks the word to them, but touches them. And their white flaky skin that was dead and, and falling apart all of a sudden was made new and made alive. Jesus came down and spoke into the first century social structures that thought women were less than men and he renewed and made alive that picture by showing that women were receiving or worthy of receiving just as much honor as the man. He goes down and he finds himself deaf people whose ears were dead and dying and he puts his hands upon their ears and all of a sudden they can hear his word for the very first time. There's hundreds of these cases, but here's the problem. As powerful and beautiful as these things are that are being made alive by the word of God himself, they all faced a problem. The curse made very clear that there was a consequence for every single person born. And it was death. So although he was making them alive in those days, they would still face the curse of death. Death was the one enemy that Adam and Eve, Israel, and us today needed rescue from. But Jesus knew this, and as the Word of God Himself, He was determined to do something so spectacular, so beautiful, and yet so unexpected that so many missed it. And this was the King of glory going to the cross and taking on the shame of a crown of thorns. And you see, we, we often read this narrative about the crown of thorns being placed on his head, and we, we read it just as a mere symbol of torture, right? These one to three inch crowns that would be pressed between the, the skin and the skull, and we see, man, that is, that is horrendous to do to a human. But the picture that the gospel writers are trying to give us is that Jesus himself is coming underneath the curse, the thorns and thistles, he is saying, you can put that on top because I'm coming underneath it. I will pay the price of the curse myself to set my people free. Set my people free. And I, in a Galatians 3.13, Paul writes this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, after taking the curse upon himself and his own body, he was buried. Like a cursed plant that was uprooted and laid to the side because it was lifeless, he laid there in a tomb. The Son of God himself, his heart stopped beating, the blood stopped flowing, and he was cast aside as if he would never be seen again. But... The Word of God always fulfills its intended purpose, and it is full of power. You see, three days later, the Word of God arose victoriously, not over just death, but over the curse itself. Paul picks up this imagery of plants in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22, when he writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as, an, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. The picture Paul's supposed to, to give here, or that he wants us to have in our minds, is we're, we're overlooking this brown field, just full of death, right? It's East County. There's, there's no life, there's no greenery, and all of a sudden, this one little green sprout comes up from the ground, the first fruits. Recently, I was looking outside my office, I was talking to Jerry Zeller about this, and Outside my office, this is probably where the illustration came from, is nothing but brown. It's this huge field. And as we've received all these rains recently, all these little green sprouts start poking up everywhere. And now it's all covered with green. In the same way, Paul's saying, in the same way Christ died according to the curse, and now he has raised as the first fruit, so as he has raised, so will each one who believes in Jesus Christ. And odd enough, if you read through the New Testament, resurrection has this twofold idea. Already and not yet. Resurrection isn't something that's just going to happen one day in the future. Paul is arguing over and over in the New Testament that the moment you trusted in Jesus, you were raised with him. And so Paul's trying to say, look at all this beautiful life that has come about. I mean, look around you this morning. If it were not for the resurrection of Christ, none of us would be meeting here. The word of God has had its intended purpose and has shown its power, not by just raising the Son of God, but by raising you. New life has truly begun. You see, we don't just look forward to the day where we you know, go to heaven and then all of a sudden like real life happens. Real life has broken in now. We are alive. We are, as Paul says, a new creation. Not we will be, we are. And we are supposed to be living in a way as if heaven has come to earth because it has. In a real sense, the world that was once full of death is now being made more and more alive by Christ. The other day I saw this video. You guys have probably seen these on, online. There's a bunch of different ones, but this one was particularly appealing. Uh, this, this older man, late 50s, maybe early 60s, uh, real tough guy from the South. You could, he just came across as if he was just the epitome of, you know, a, a man, right? A, as far as our culture would define one. And his kids are all gathered in front of the, the porch of their house, and they give him his birthday present. And he opens this present, and he, it's a pair of sunglasses. And he's like, I don't need more sunglasses. And he's like, you know, just playing the, the tough guy. And they're like, put on the glasses. And you find out that the guy had been born colorblind. And he puts on these special pair of glasses that help you to see color. And at first in the video, he's, he's just shocked. There's, there's silence, and he's looking around. And then he just starts to slowly, like, get words out of his mouth. And, and he's like, the, the flowers. And he sees the color of flowers for the first time. And then he looks out into the field at all the trees, and the, the greenery is coming alive to him. And then the scene that got me, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a crier. His kids come over, and he could see the color of their eyes. For the first time. And this, this tough guy all of a sudden isn't so tough any longer. As 
as he sees color the way he was intended to originally, the tears start to come and he, he's just doing this. He can't, he can't contain himself at the joy because all he has known is curse. And now he's seen things the way he should and he just cannot contain the fact that he is seeing life in color for the first time. This is what has happened to us. If you've been given a new heart, all of a sudden, yes, we look outside. We look inside ourselves and we still see remnants of the curse. But that's not all we see. We see God bringing things to life. We see beauty happening, happening in places that it formerly wasn't. Paul picks up this similar image in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, talking about those who believe in Jesus. And he says, <coughs> For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, using Genesis 1-3, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This means that God has done this great work of making us new and we can actually see life the way we're supposed to now. That the King of glory himself who came down as the word of God has also shown into our hearts this great glory and now we start to want to see it more and more throughout his creation. And surprising enough, this makes us a people who are joining him in his story of redemption. This story to take this good news of the gospel to all those around us in our life. Recently, I had a friend send me a text message, and uh, he didn't get to hear this last night, and he might be in the room, and this will embarrass him quite a bit, but uh, of all these letters and notes that people had come by and dropped off to him for Christmas time. Now, this friend of mine, he manages a convenience store and a gas station in Pine Valley. Now, if you go up to Pine Valley, it's, it's right off the freeway there, and you might not expect Pine Valley to be a place where God is working, right? It's, it's small, it's East East County, and it's, it's far off from where, he, where we even live. But this, this guy, he's been working here for a long time, and he has been faithful year after year to share the Word of God. Now, every time I go in here and visit this store, not only are his co-workers talking to me about God. Not only are regular customers that come in telling me how this guy has shared the word of God with them, but there's random people like border patrol agents who come in to stop there. Who, oh yeah, he's told me about the word of God. It's incredible. When I got this text from him on Christmas morning and reading these notes from these people that have been recipients of the word of God, I mean, I was just astounded, thinking God is doing a work through his word by the faithfulness of one man here in this little town. And I think sometimes we get so concerned that, man, if we could just start a new ministry, if we could move somewhere else, if we had different neighbors, if our coworkers weren't so crazy, if we think whatever it is, if we could just change the circumstances, then we would be really good at sharing God's word. What this taught me and I need to learn from myself is it's just steady faithfulness. Sharing the word of God, if, if we're encouraged by it, we can share it 
in the same way. And God is starting to make alive all over the world, still to this day, dead and cursed things. And he is so decided by his great sovereignty and wisdom to include us in this. That's crazy to me. Like, if you've seen me share the gospel with some of my neighbors, you think, like, dude, do you even know Jesus? Like, you were fumbling over your words. You started talking about some crazy stuff that had nothing to do with the Bible. Like, why are you so nervous? Like, and God intends to use it. <laughs> like, that's crazy to me. The church has been set free to share the word of God with our coworkers and our neighbors and friends. James 1.18 basically sums up the whole summary of this sermon by saying this. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, James' imagery there is basically saying God's brought his word to us so that we could be raised up and share it so that others could be included. Now, the language and imagery of Isaiah 55, 12, which I skipped earlier, is beautiful and drives a lot of these things home. Isaiah writes, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now, there's a lot here. I'm just going to bring out two things. That little phrase, you shall go out, in the original language there, it's supposed to be an illusion. That's hard for us to pick up, but the original audience would have. It's an illusion to the Exodus. This grand event where God had brought them out of slavery and into his protection and care to be those who would be a light to the nations. And so he's bringing back one of the greatest events in Israel's history to say, hey Israel, you're in exile again. You're under the curse, but guess what? That one great work I did, the greatest work in your history, I'm going to bring you out again. And he also is looking forward. As you continue reading through Isaiah, it keeps talking about this, this word of God, this suffering servant, this one who would make all creation new. He's also looking forward to the final exodus. The one that happened at the cross and resurrection of Jesus where all who would trust in him were set free from ultimate and eternal slavery and set free into the wilderness of God's care until his second coming. But what's even more beautiful about this text is the beauty itself of what God has done. I didn't put it in the slides, but Romans 8 makes this real dark picture of the creation, right? That it's groaning. It's longing to be made new. Well, this imagery in Isaiah 55 is talking about the cross and resurrection and the beauty it would bring to all of creation. It is saying that the mountains and the hills will break forth into singing. The trees we're supposed to picture are clapping their hands. It's this imagery of all of God's creation being made new and made beautiful. Can you imagine that? Where the whole entire world bears not one mark of the curse any longer? That the word of God always has a sweetness to it? That there's no envy or jealousy of our brother or sister, but only love? No thorns and thistles, no curse. Just love and celebration. 
Now the whole point of the end of verse 13 in Isaiah 55 is Isaiah declaring this reality about the transformed people of God now. It says, and it, which is the, the renewed creation that was, was once cursed, now made alive, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Again, this is just saying, we as God's people who've been made new are now this signpost to the God who is making all things new. We are this everlasting sign, this sign that will not cease, that points to the one who is making all things new. We are little reflections of this beauty who carry around this powerful and purposeful word. Dane Ortland says this, he says, Divine beauty is, in its own finite way, to be reproduced. The supreme instance of divine beauty being reflected in creation is not in the sun or the Grand Canyon or even in a nightingale's song, but in a Christian. A Christian is a mini-advertisement for divine beauty. To be a Christian is to be a little, frail, finite, morally faltering picture of the beauty of God. Dane Ortland's trying to free us of being perfect He's saying, guess what? The curse is still having its mark on us. But divine beauty has broken in. And we're showing that off in the cursed world. Now I'm going to close by just showing how this beauty and the word of God had spread so quickly in the first century in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see Jesus after 40 days of being resurrected, meets up with his disciples, and then he ascends to heaven. But he sends them on a mission with his word. And listen, the whole book of Acts is, is structured around the word of God. Acts 6-7 says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. As Paul continues his missionary journeys, Acts 19, 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It wasn't that the apostles had sat down once the Holy Spirit came and said, listen, we need to come up with some really good structures here, right? Okay, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem first, then you're going to go here, and then we're going to work out like ways to get people connected. All those are important, sure. But the driving source was God using his word in his people who were filled with his Holy Spirit. The word of God was the active agent that he was using in his creation. The power of God's word is still bringing dead things to life today. Look around you. We wouldn't be here apart from the word of God. And in every city, throughout all the world, are popping up these little plants. These little kingdom outposts called churches. Full of people from different tribes, nations, and tongues. Who have received the word, who have been made alive. And this is why we can preach at one another's churches. <laughs> This is why we can enjoy one another because we don't have something that is significant to just us. We are a group of people who have been raised by the powerful and purposeful word of God. 
So Grace Church, true life and true beauty is found in the good news of Jesus Christ, who has come mightily and beautifully through his word to you, so that you can both treasure it and liberally and gladly share it with those who desperately need it. So I'll leave the application to next week. Let me pray.